Well, if you have your Bibles with you again this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Job. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 531, Job chapter 5. This morning, I'm going to speak for a few minutes on this subject, Torn to Heal, Job chapter 5. We're going to read just two verses of Scripture together, verses 17 and 18 of Job chapter 5. And I'll encourage you, as I did last week, to keep your Bible open this morning and follow along as I point you back to the text. Uh, If you do not do that today, I promise that you will be lost very quickly uh, in the sermon. So I encourage you to do that. Job chapter 5. Verses 17 and 18, and this is what the Word of God says. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. A fictitious story is told of the devil who wanted to have a garage sale. And so he took his finest tools, hatred, jealousy, deceit, lust, lying, and pride, and he laid them all out on the driveway. And he took his greatest tool, the most battered and worn and rugged tool, and he set it off to the side. One of the shoppers came and was observing all of the tools and they noticed that the worn tool was off by itself and it was priced the highest of all of the tools. And so the shopper inquired of the devil why the price was so high. And in response, he laughed and he said, that's the tool called discouragement. It's more powerful than any other tool in my toolbox. Because when I use that tool, it paves the way for all the other tools in my toolbox to be used and unleashed in a person's life. And when we come to this next section in the book of Job, Job chapters 4 through 7, we find that Job is indeed discouraged. And beginning in chapter 4, we enter the longest section of this book, where we are reintroduced to Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. If you'll recall, at the end of chapter 2, these three friends made a long journey to join Job at the ash heap to provide, as the Bible says, sympathy and comfort. And so for seven days and seven nights, they sat silently beside Job in the ashes. But now... They will no longer be silent. And as Job will tell us in a few weeks in Job chapter 13 and verse 5, he will look back on these days when his friends begin to speak and he will long for Job chapter 3 when they were quiet and didn't say anything. Job withstood the collapse of his business, the death of his children, the infliction of disease, the criticism of his wife. But what came the closest to 
finally defeating him was the counsel of his friends. These three men became tools of the devil, aimed at the heart and soul of Job to crush him and bury him in the ashes upon which he sat. And for the next 23 chapters, a prolonged series of dialogues will take place between Job and his friends. This series of speeches is made up of three rounds in which each friend addresses Job and then Job responds. The only exception is with the third round in which Zophar remains silent. And throughout these three rounds of speeches, Job's friends make the same argument that all suffering is a punishment for sin. And as the dialogues uh, progress, they become more and more intense. What begins as a discussion turns into a debate and ends in a full-on dispute. And at the end of the book, only God can set things right. According to Eric Ortland, Job's friends engage with Job in a form of speech known as contest literature, where the goal of the speech is to demolish your opponent by using strong and powerful rhetoric. And as you'll see in these chapters before us, that is exactly what Job's friends do. Now today, the first friend that we meet is the man named Eliphaz the Temanite who came from a town that was known for its wisdom. He is the oldest of the three friends. He appealed to his experience, as you will see in the text, for his authority. And he was the most sympathetic of the three, if you can believe that, once you see his words today. And having witnessed Job suffering on the ash heap and crying out in lament in chapter 3, he now addresses Job and his suffering, trying to comfort him, reminding him that God tears us, but he tears us to heal us. So look with me in Job chapters 4 and 5, and the first thing that we're going to see this morning is Eliphaz's rebuke. And it begins in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4 with his approach to Job. And the Bible says, Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have upheld him who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope? You'll notice in these first six verses that Eliphaz's approach to Job starts out pretty positive and gentle. But you'll notice that by the time we get to verse 6, it no longer is polite and gentle. In verse number 2, Eliphaz politely asks Job if he has the ability to endure a conversation because after listening to his lament in Job chapter 3, Eliphaz can no longer remain silent. And then in verses 3 and 4, Eliphaz commends Job for the help that he has given to others in the past. According to his friend, you'll see in the text, Job has instructed many he has strengthened the weak, he has upheld the stumbling, and he has made firm the feeble. 
One translator translates all of this description in verse 4 as this, Job, your words have kept people on their feet. So he's commending Job for his work in helping the suffering. But notice in verses 5 and 6 that his tone begins to change. In verse 5, he accuses Job of being impatient and dismayed. And then in verse number 6, Eliphaz insinuates that if Job were truly a godly man, and if he were truly a man of integrity, then Job would have confidence. He would have hope. And Job would not be on the verge of collapse like he is now. And essentially, friends, what Eliphaz is accusing Job of in verses 1 through 6 is not practicing what he preached. That Job could strengthen and encourage others in the midst of their suffering, but when it came to his own affliction, he did not have the ability to encourage and strengthen himself. It's ironic, isn't it? What Eliphaz failed to realize in this passage is that the one who is in the midst of suffering cannot encourage themselves. Eliphaz should have been the one who was encouraging Job. Now you'll see in verses 7 to 11 of chapter 4 that he moves from his approach to his assumption concerning Job. And this is the heart of of Eliphaz and his three friends' arguments. He says, beginning in verse 7, Remember who that was innocent ever perished, or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same, but by the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. He begins his argument in verse 7 with the word, Remember. He's reminding Job of the theology that Job and all of his friends adhere to. This theology is very simple. They all believe that God is absolutely in control. They all believe that God is just and fair. And therefore, they all believe that God always punishes wickedness. And God always blesses righteousness. And God always punishes. And God always blesses immediately. Therefore, if someone is suffering, it's because they have sinned. And if someone is prospering, it is because they are righteous. In theological language, we call this argument the retribution theology. It is a doctrine that is a form of what we refer to today as the prosperity gospel. A the theology that asserts that if you just have enough faith, and if you sow a monetary seed of faith, and if you live a good life, God will bless you. God will prosper you, and you'll never be sick, and you'll never have any problems in your life. And all of this physical and material prosperity will be a sign that you have earned the favor of God. And friends, whether you realize it or not, this theology is rampant in the church today. 
And this is what Job and his friends believe. They believe in the prosperity gospel. And Eliphaz expands his argument in verse 8, and he says, it really comes down to this, Job. It's the law of sowing and reaping. Job, you will reap what you've sown. And obviously, because you're suffering, you have sown evil. Therefore, Job, you are reaping evil. It reminds me of a Peanuts cartoon that I came across. And in the cartoon, Lucy speaks to Charlie Brown. And she says to him, there's one thing you're going to have to learn about life, Charlie Brown. You reap what you sow. You get out of life what you put into it. No more and no less. And in the next shot of the cartoon, there is Snoopy off by himself. And he says, I'd kind of like to see a little margin for error. And wouldn't we all, if we're living under this kind of false theology? But the Bible is very clear, friends. We do reap what we sow, Galatians chapter 6. We just don't reap it in the way that the prosperity gospel admonishes. We don't reap it immediately. The Bible teaches us that God is patient in his judgment and in his justice. And that he will allow the wheat to grow with the false. And at the end, on the last judgment, he will separate the wheat from the chaff and he will bring final judgment. But Job and his friends, they don't realize this. They believe the wicked are punished now and the righteous prosper now. And to prove his point in verses 9 through 11, Eliphaz illustrates his theology by declaring that those who live in sinful rebellion will be destroyed and perish by the breath of God and the blast of his anger. Just as a hunter destroys the lion and the cubs and the young lions all perish at the loss of the main head lion of the tribe, Job, because you're in sin, God has breathed his anger out on you and your family, and that's why your children have died. That's what he's saying. Your children died, Job, because you're a sinner. And you need to just own up to it and confess it and repent. And friends, this is what many people view about suffering. That suffering is always a response to sin. Because it's easier to have that simplistic view of suffering in our lives than it is to adjust what we believe about God. And you'll notice in all of this language, instead of providing comfort and encouragement to Job, all Eliphaz is doing is arguing his theological position. Job did not need correction. Job needed comfort. Job needed a friend in the midst of his pain to comfort him and lift him up, not pile on. In verses 12 to 21 of chapter 4, we come to a very strange passage of Scripture. And in this passage, Eliphaz establishes his authority. He establishes his authority for all that he said in his theology by describing a secret word that he has received in a vision. 
And in verses 12 to 16, he describes this vision, how a spirit came to him in his dreams and how it scared him and terrified him. And it literally made the hair on the back of his neck rise up in the middle of his sleep. And then in verse 17, he conveys what the message of the spirit said to him in his dream. Two questions. Can mortal man be in the right before God? And can a man be pure before his maker? And the obvious answer to these questions is no. And Eliphaz's point is simply this. Job, you should expect suffering in life because you always reap what you sow. And you're not pure and you cannot stand before your maker and your God. Job, because of your sin, you deserve to die. And then in verses 18 to 21, Eliphaz interprets the Spirit's message, saying that God is so infinite, Job, God is so mighty, that if angels can be charged with error, how much more those like you who dwell in clay houses... People like you, Job, they die quickly and suddenly God crushes them like a moth. He beats them to pieces without anyone noticing it. He plucks their life from them like tent stakes that are removed from the ground when a tent is packed up. Job is hearing from Eliphaz that Eliphaz has the market on the theology of suffering. That because of this dream... From this spirit, he has authority to counsel Job and to back up what he's saying. And Job, if you refuse to listen to me, Eliphaz says, you'll die without wisdom. You will die and perish in your suffering. And here's what I want you to know about this strange passage, friends. It wasn't from God. This was an evil spirit. Many believe that this was actually Satan putting his own words and his own argument from Job chapter 1 and 2 in Eliphaz so that Eliphaz would be his servant to torment Job. Now, Eliphaz thinks these words will help Job. Can I just ask you a simple question this morning? If you were sitting on the receiving end of these words from Eliphaz, would you be helped? Would you be comforted? Would you be encouraged in your suffering? Eliphaz is all about his experience. His experience trumps everything else. And he is so narrow-minded and simplistic in his argument that the only solution from him to Job's situation is that Job confess his sin and repent. And he is a tool of Satan's influence in the heart of Job. Now look at Job chapter 5. And in verses 1 through 7, Eliphaz applies his theology to Job. Look at what he says. Call now, is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Surely vexation kills the fool, and jealousy slays the simple. I've seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate. There is no one to deliver them. The hungry eat his harvest, and he takes it even out of thorns, and the thirsty pant after his wealth. And then notice verses 6 and 7. This is the heart of his application. 
For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. In these verses, Eliphaz applies his theological argument to Job and his suffering. And notice what he does in the beginning of this passage. He describes Job as a fool who brings destruction on himself and his family because he can't keep his emotions of anger and jealousy towards God under control. And when you study these verses carefully, especially verse number four, here is what Eliphaz is arguing again, that Job's children die because Job is a sinner and Job is foolish. And then in verses six and seven, according to Eliphaz, just as sparks from a fire fly upward, So man is born to trouble. Literally, affliction comes from the dust. Trouble sprouts from the ground. And what Eliphaz is trying to teach Job and what he's trying to teach you and me is that we live in a world under the curse of God. That we live in a world of evil. That we live in a world where the devil is free to roam about the earth like a roaring lion seeking to devour And all of these evil powers under the curse of God in this world cause trouble for us all the time. And Job, only a fool like you, would think that you deserve to escape trouble and suffering. And Job, it's because of your foolishness that God has destroyed your family. When are you going to learn? Now, how could Eliphaz know this? How could he know Job's heart like he proposes to know? Then in verses 8 to 16 of chapter 5, he gives him advice. You won't believe some of the things that he says. He tells Job why he's suffering. And now he tells Job what he can do about it. Look at verse 8. This is actually a very helpful verse for us in the midst of our suffering. As for me, Job, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause. Amen. What's the point of suffering? To drive you to God. To seek God and to commit your cause and your ways and your life to Him. And in the midst of all of his crazy argument and counsel to Job, Eliphaz actually says something helpful. Can you believe it? You should underline this verse in your Bible. Job, if I were suffering like you, I would seek God and I would commit myself and my ways to God. Job, cast yourself on the mercy of God and God will heal you. But Eliphaz's recommendation just compounds the nature of Job's suffering. Because Eliphaz still believes that Job's problem is his sin. And if you've been with me since Job chapter 1, you know that Job's problem is not his sin. Now, beginning in verse 9, Eliphaz goes on and he speaks some wonderful, truthful things about God. Just look at a couple of these verses. Verse 9, God who does great things... 
and unsearchable and marvelous things without number. And he goes on to describe God's sovereignty over the earth and over nature and how God writes wrongs in the lives of his people. And this is a beautiful testimony from Eliphaz about things that are true about God. He actually gets this perspective of God right. So much so that one commentator said that this is really a hymn in poetic language and it needs no other comment than what Eliphaz says because it is so clear about the nature of God. Job, God is infinite. God is great. Job, God does wonderful things. So seek him. And he'll help you. And then in verses 17 to 27 of Job 5, Eliphaz tries to give Job assurance and reassure him that everything is okay. And again, in verses 17 and 18, he says things that are true about God. Look at it. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. Hebrews chapter 12. In verse 18, for he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. The book of Hosea. Eliphaz is reminding Job that the God who wounds him is the God who heals him, that he tears us to heal us. He bruises us to rebuild us. And then in verses 19 to 26, he speaks like a modern prosperity preacher, promising Job that if he would just confess his sin, God will deliver him from his troubles. God will protect him. God will restore everything that he's lost. And Job will live a long and happy life and have a peaceful death. And little does Eliphaz know that when we get to Job chapter 42, that's exactly what God does for Job. But in this context, this is another argument from the devil. Don't miss it, friends. Do you know what Eliphaz is saying to him? Job, when are you going to wake up? When are you going to make a deal with the devil and make a deal with God so that all of this can go away? And then finally, in verse 27 of chapter 5, Eliphaz concludes his speech. And notice how he concludes it. He concludes it in the plural language. He's speaking on behalf of all three friends. He says, Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear and know it for your good. Bildad and Zophar are sitting beside Eliphaz. And the whole time Eliphaz is opining for these two chapters, Bildad and Zophar are sitting there. That's right. That's right. Listen to him. Amen, Job. He's right. You should listen to him. This is where the friends lie. Now, what are we to do? With all of this. Well, I have some application thoughts for you this morning, and they're rather lengthy. And so I, I really hope you'll pay attention because I think they'll really help us. Here's the first one Eliphaz, as a counselor, failed miserably. When Job needed his friends the most, his friends were lacking. Now, to be clear, as I've mentioned to you, he emphasized powerful truth along the way. 
We do reap what we sow. We are not always pure and right before God. We should seek God. God does do great things. God does discipline his people. God does tear us to heal us. All of those things are true. But he misapplied all of that truth to Job's life. So here are some helpful reminders when you're helping someone who is suffering. Number one, be humble. Don't try to explain everything. Eliphaz truly believed that he completely understood the mysteries of God. And when you read chapter 4 and 5 clearly, it is obvious that Eliphaz did not have a clue. Why do you think you have the ability to answer every single question that a person who is suffering has? Do you really think you have the market on the mysteries of God? Be humble. Number two, be sympathetic. Galatians 6.2 says that we are to bear one another's burdens, which means that we are literally to get up under our brother and sister in Christ's burdens and help them carry the weight of their hurt and their suffering. Could you show me one verse in chapter 4 and 5 where Eliphaz got under the weight of Job's suffering and helped him lift his burden? Be sympathetic. Number three, be compassionate. Remember, Job chapter 2, verse 11 says that the friends went to Job to show him sympathy and to comfort him. And, and here's my picture of what is happening in Job 4 and 5. Job finds himself in the pit of suffering. And instead of his friends coming to the pit of suffering and jumping in the pit with Job in the midst of his suffering, his friends would rather stand around the outside of the pit and look down into the pit of suffering and theologize about all the reasons why Job is in the pit of suffering instead of jumping in the pit and helping him get out of it. No comfort. No sympathy. They saw Job, listen, they saw Job as a theological problem to solve instead of a person to help. Number four, be balanced. Eliphaz's view of God was distorted. All he saw of God was severe justice, harsh judgment, swift discipline, severe condemnation. There was no room in Eliphaz's theology for a God of love, a God of mercy, a God of grace, and a God of compassion. Think about how you help those who are in pain. Application number two. We need to remember in our suffering that this is not final judgment and this is not final restoration. Eliphaz believed rewards and punishment were distributed immediately. But this is not always true. Friends, look in your own life and look around the world this very moment this morning. Do you really believe that reward and punishment are given immediately equally? 
No. This is not final judgment. This is not final restoration. Therefore, you have to be patient in your suffering because one day God will balance the scales. He will bring final reward. He will bring final justice. And number three, this may be the most important one that I want to give you as your pastor to help you think about suffering. Eliphaz's theology of suffering was way too simplistic and narrow. We need, as the people of God, to have categories of suffering. Do you have some recommendations? Yes. Number one, you need to have a category of sin. Suffering is ultimately the result of living in a sin-cursed world. And sometimes, friends, our suffering is a result of sin. Through the sinful choices we make, our disobedience to God, our rejection of God's command, eating five donuts instead of one, the misuse of alcohol and drugs and other things in our society, sin does cause suffering. Second category. There is a category of suffering for punishment. You need look no further than Numbers chapter 12 and verse 10 and see how Miriam's leprosy was a sign of punishment from God. Category number three. We need a category of sanctification in suffering. Suffering is a means by which God produces Christ-likeness in us. Suffering is a means by which God refines us and shapes us and forms us and purifies us for our good. That's why James says in James chapter 1, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you go through various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Sometimes God uses suffering to produce things in our life so that at the end we will look more like Christ. And if you don't understand that, you will struggle in the midst of your suffering. God is refining us and he's purifying us and he's making us look more like his son. Category number four, we need a category of righteous suffering. The Bible tells us in the book of 2 Timothy that those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer. And those who hold fast to the word of God, listen to me, church, will suffer. And I need to remind you of that this morning. Would you please look at the world around you in which you are currently residing? The only way you will escape suffering as a Christian is if you compromise. If you desire to live for God, suffering is coming to you. And you need this category of suffering or you will flee the church. Category number five. You need a category of Satan. Job chapter one, Job chapter two shows us that Satan has the ability to bring suffering. The New Testament gives tons of examples of Satan's activity and how he brings suffering. The devil is real. And if you don't have a category for that, 
You will struggle in understanding suffering. Well, number six, please listen to this one, church, because most Christians that I talk to about suffering do not have this category. You need a category of the glory of God. In John chapter 9, Jesus' disciples come to him and they ask him a powerful question. Jesus, there's this man that was born blind from birth. Who sinned, him or his parents? Do you know how Jesus responds? He says, this man was born blind from birth for the sole purpose of displaying my works and my glory. I can't explain it to you any clearer than Scripture does in John chapter 9, but there is a type of suffering in which God uses to magnify his works and to display his glory. And you have to come to the place in understanding suffering where the glory of God is more important than your comfort. You need a category of the glory of God. And finally, you need a category of innocent suffering. Eliphaz and his friends have no category for innocent suffering. Therefore, listen to me. This is worth coming to church for this morning. Because they have no category of innocent suffering, they have no category for the cross. Because Job, in his innocent suffering, is a shadow and a picture of the God-man who will one day suffer in innocence for the sins of the world, for your sins and my sins and the sins of the world on that tree so that suffering could be dealt its final blow and be forever defeated through the work of Christ on the cross. And listen, without the cross of Christ, the book of Job makes no sense. And without the cross of Christ, your suffering will make no sense. The answer to every kind of suffering finds its exclamation point in the Lord Jesus Christ when he says, it is finished. And if you don't have a category for that, you will struggle in your suffering. Well, that was Eliphaz's rebuke. Now, let me show you quickly Job's response in chapter 6 and 7. Now, here's how you make sense of what's happening. Job chapter 6, Job responds to Eliphaz. Job chapter 7, Job does what he did in Job chapter 3, and he cries out and lament to God again. So look at chapter 6, and this is Job's response to Eliphaz. And in verses 1 through 7, he describes the weight of his suffering. Then Job answered and said, Oh, that my vexation were weighed, and all my calamity laid in the balances. For then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words have been rash, for the arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. Does the wild donkey bray when he has grass, or the ox low over his fodder? Can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the juice of the mallow? My appetite refuses to touch them. They are as food that is loathsome to me. 
What is Job describing in these verses? The despair in his suffering and all that he has been experiencing. In verses 1 through 3, he says, If you were to take a a pair of scales and if you were to weigh my pain and suffering, Eliphaz, you would find that the weight of my suffering and pain and hardship outweighs the sand of the sea. It's heavier than that, Eliphaz. I need comfort. And I get criticism from you. Do you not understand the pain that I'm under? He says there in these verses, Yes, my words are rash, Eliphaz. If you'd been experiencing what I've been experiencing, your words would be rash too. You've got a problem with what I said in Job chapter 3. Walk in my shoes for a day and see what you would say. Then in verse 4, he, he doesn't view, look at that verse. He does not view God as a father who is lovingly disciplining him. Do you see it? He views God as a hunter who is shooting arrows of poison into his body. And those arrows of poison are sinking so deep in his spirit that he is full of terror. And then in verses 5 to 7, he responds to Eliphaz and he says, Eliphaz, does the donkey make noises when he's got food? No, he's quiet. Eliphaz, I have no food. All I have is suffering. All I have is pain. Does the white of an egg have any taste to it? No. Eliphaz, my life has no taste. My life has no meaning. I'm crying out in rash words because I am full of the pain and suffering and weight of affliction. Do you not understand? And then verses 8 to 13 He speaks of the weariness of his suffering. Look look at how he's pleading. Oh, that I might have my request and that God would fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off, and this would be my comfort. I would even exult in pain unsparing, for I have not denied the words of the Holy One. What is my strength that I should wait? And what is my end that I should be patient? Is my strength the strength of stones or is my flesh bronze? Have I any help in me when resources are driven from me? Job's lost all hope. His strength is fading. He has no help. And in the midst of his despair and his weariness, he longs. Do you see it in verses 8 and 9? For God to crush him. For God to loose him from sustaining his life and for God to cut him off like a weaver snips a piece of thread. And in verses 10 to 13, he says, I want God to crush me and cut me off like this because my strength is fading so quickly. I'm afraid that I'm going to deny the words of the Holy One if I don't die. That's how weary he is in his suffering. Have you ever been there? You felt your strength was about to be totally depleted? You were worried that you would say things that would be wrong of God? This is where Job is. In verses 14 to 30 of chapter 6, he speaks of the wounds of his suffering, and it's all in the context of his friends. And what he's saying is that his friends have added to the wounds of his suffering by the way they've counseled him 
and tried to care for him. Look at verse 14. It's a verse to underline in your Bible for sure. He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. The word kindness there describes covenantal love and loyalty. Now, don't miss what Job's saying. Job is saying to his friends, you've added to my wounds. You've added to my suffering because you've withheld kindness. You've withheld loyalty. You've withheld love. And in that culture, if you'll read the rest of verse 14, it literally means that they've lost their fear of God. Because when you fear God, you're loyal to your friends and you're loyal to those in suffering. And they've lost their fear of God because they've withheld their kindness from Job. And then in verses 15 to 20, he describes how they've withheld their kindness. He compares them to a dry riverbed. And he says, in the winter, the riverbed is full of cold, refreshing water and ice. But you don't really need it in the wintertime because it's too cold to get into the water. It's in the summertime when you're traveling with the caravan that you need cool refreshment from that water source. And it's then when the caravan comes upon the riverbed that they find it's dry and it's full of rocks. And Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, you've withheld kindness from me. You're like a dry riverbed full of rocks. Just when I needed cool refreshment from you, you were barren and empty and dry. And then notice what he says in verse 21. For you have now become nothing. You see my calamity and you're afraid. You are empty counselors. You're nothing. And not only are you nothing, you're afraid that God will see you guilty by associating with me. So you're afraid to even get close to me and give me a hug and comfort me and console me. You are nothing. And then in verse 24, he says, but teach me where I've gone wrong. Show me what I've done wrong, and I'll listen to you. But the height of it, don't miss verse 28. In the midst of all of this conversation, they wouldn't even look at Job. In verse 28, Job says, look at me. Can't you see what I'm going through and you won't even look at me? Some kind of friends. In chapter 7, Job responds to God. And in verses 1 to 10, he describes the futility of his life. He says in verses 1 and 2 that life on earth is nothing but hard service I'm like a hired hand waiting for a paycheck. I'm like a slave working in the hot sun, longing for shade to get rest. For me, life is hard. It's empty. It's restless. It's painful. It's hopeless. In verses 3 and 5, he says, life is so hard because of the length of my suffering. And not only the length of my suffering, but I can't sleep. There's sores all over my body. My wounds are covered with dirt. Worms are crawling in and out of all of these sores. And I cannot sleep. And then in verses 6 to 10, he says, even though it seems like forever since I've been afflicted, life is so short. It's just racing past me. And I'm going to be in Sheol soon. I'm going to die. 
And then in verses 11 to the end of the chapter, Job describes the frustration of his life. And this, friends, is where he laments to God again. Look at what he says in verse 11. Because of all the futility of my life, therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Job is not going to hold anything back. He is going to tell God exactly what he thinks and exactly what he feels about his situation. And do you know what Job's main complaint to God is? God, you're a bully. You have singled me out and you are picking on me. In verse number 12, he asks God, God, am I like Leviathan? Am I like that evil sea monster of chaos that you feel it's necessary that you have to put your hand on me and restrain me this way in my suffering? God, am I that bad that you see me like Leviathan? And then in verses 13 to 15, oh, you got to see this. The Bible is real. I am not making this up. I have to read this to you. Look, when I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and you terrify me with visions so that I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. Do you see what he's saying? I can't sleep, but when I do finally fall asleep and the melatonin works, God, I'm finally asleep. Then you scare me in my sleep with dreams and visions. You're terrifying me, God. What have I done to you? I'd rather die than live like this. That's raw. It's real. Then in verses 16 to 18, it's the height of his complaint. Look at what he says. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone for my days are a breath. What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him, visiting him every morning and testing him every moment? How long will you not look away from me nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? Do you know what he's saying? In these words, he is comparing Psalm 8 where the psalmist says, Who are we, Lord, as humans that you would have mindfulness of us and that you would care for us? And Job is speaking it in reverse, and he's saying, God, why are you so mindful of me? Every morning when I wake up, you are in my face to test me. I don't have a moment's peace from you, God. I can't even swallow my spit without you being in my face. What have I done that you have marked me like this? And friends, lest you misunderstand, these words from Job describe how some people really feel in their suffering. Verses 20 to 21, he ends his complaint by asking four questions. I told you it was like chapter 3. Look at it. If I sin, what do I do to you? You're a watcher of mankind. Why have you made me your mark. Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? Some man wrestling with God in his suffering. Why God? Why? 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 And yet 
Don't miss this. Write this in your Bible. In the midst of his whys, he still believes in what he knows to be true about God's character. He says at the beginning of verse 21, God, I know you can forgive me, so why don't you just do it? He's never lost hold of who God really is, even in his pain and suffering. And listen to me, I'm going somewhere with this. This is worth church today. I've given you two things worth church today. This is it. In the midst of his lament, in the midst of his raw emotions and words, the Bible is picturing for us a man wrestling with his God in the midst of suffering, telling his God Everything that he is thinking, everything that he is feeling, not to inform God because God already knows everything, but to wrestle with his trust and to lean into the character that he knows to be true about God. And do you know how he ends in his lament? You're going to be shocked. You're going to be shocked by this. Look at the last verse of chapter 7 and the last sentence. For now, I shall lie in the earth, and God, you will seek me, but I shall not be. Do you know what he just said to God? If you don't forgive me, I'm going to die. My strength is failing. And God, when I die, you're going to miss me. You're going to look for me. And you're not going to be able to find me because I'm going to be in Sheol, the place of rest. Remember, he doesn't have a mature view of death and resurrection yet. And so, God, I'm going to Sheol, and you're going to miss me. This was a man walking and wrestling with his God through suffering. Now, let me apply it and wrap up. You've been very gracious to stay with me. It's the miracle. For three weeks, I preached one chapter every week. Today, four. Miracle. <laughs> Application number one. Job gives us the language of lament. And if I could deposit something in you about suffering other than categories of suffering, it would be the language of lament. You need the language of lament when you suffer. A book that I devoured that I strongly recommend, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, is all about the language of lament. And this is what the author says about our need for lament and our suffering. Trust is believing what you know to be true even though the facts of suffering might call that belief into question. And that's what happens when you suffer. You question what you believe. He says, lament keeps us turning towards trust by giving us a language to step into the wilderness between our painful reality and our hopeful longings. And do you know what he's saying? I'll just interpret it for you. He is saying that the language of lament bridges the gap from your questions and your pain and your suffering to what you ultimately know to be true and trust in about God. 
And that's why you need the language of lament. The language of lament helps you wrestle with your questions and it ultimately leads you back to what you know to be true about God. And you just saw that illustrated in Job chapter 7. He said amazing things to God. I'd rather die. You're terrorizing me in my sleep. God, why are you so mindful of me? Quit looking at me. Oh, and God, you're going to miss me when I'm gone. How did he go from there to there? Lament. You need lament to strengthen your trust in God. Application number two. Would you be slow to judge God as hostile, cruel, and foolish, or out of control? Would you remember Job 5.18? He tears us to heal us. He's not finished with us yet. Application number three. You may be like Job today in your suffering. You have no idea why things have turned out this way. And all you can do is shrug. You don't know. All you can do is shrug. Do you know what Chuck Swindoll says about that? He says, would you remember in your suffering today? that God never shrugs. He knows exactly why this has happened. He knows exactly how, how long you'll be in this suffering, and he knows the end result. You may shrug, but God never does. Struggling and deity, shrugging and deity are incompatible. God never shrugs. He always knows why. So you can rest in him. And finally, application number four. Pain and suffering, if you're not careful, will distort your view and understanding of God. It will cause you to doubt that God is a God of love, a heavenly Father who feels your pain and your sorrow. And you'll begin to see Him the way Job did in Job chapter 7, as a watcher of men intent on your destruction. But it's in those times of darkness that you must remember that God has forever displayed his fatherly love for you by sending his one and only son to live among us and to experience all of the frailties of humanity and all of the sufferings of humanity and to die to ultimately deal with our suffering. Because he died for our sins, you and I can be sons and daughters of the Most High God, and we can be forever rescued from eternal suffering. Because I want you to know as your pastor this morning, whether you're a member of this church, whether you're a guest, whether you're someone visiting, the greatest suffering that anyone will ever experience is a suffering in eternity forever separated from God. And the truth and the glory of the gospel is, friends, not a single one of you in this room ever has to experience that suffering. Jesus suffered in your place for your sin so that you could have life eternal with him in heaven. And both Job and I point you to Christ, the innocent one who suffered for the guilty so that the guilty could be seen as innocent by God. Let's pray.